everyone. First off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the First Nations peoples on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. And we would also like to pay our respects to the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, past and present. As well, we'd like to pay our respects to the elders of the Squamish Nation, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of the Asian Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from still our bedrooms. This fall, autumn for you outside the US, November 9th to 13th, anthropologists from across the globe will gather in Seattle and online for the American Anthropological Association's annual meeting. We've made new strides in anthropology and we'll have the chance to share these achievements in person at the AAA's annual meeting. So register today and add your voice to the conversations that will help shape the field. Learn more and register by going to the association's website at AmericanAnthro.org. That's AmericanAnthro.org. I am your familiar stranger today, Kathy, together with my familiar strangers, Alex. Hello. Lachlan. Hello. And Sean. Hey there. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. So, Alex, what have you been thinking about this week? Right. So, a team member of TFS came to me this week to ask me a question. Basically, Dali the um, AI image generator has been opened up for everyone to use. And she asked, can we use digital images for our blogs? Because I'm going to be honest with you, getting images for the blogs is a bit of a pain in the ass of a process. And I'm honestly pretty against it. I have real issues with AI art and I don't quite know how, because I am not a very creative person, but somehow I follow a lot of artists um particularly web comic artists and web artists on twitter and they're super anti-ai art and i just kind of thought that was the norm i thought that was kind of the general opinion but it turns out most people seem to be quite positive about it um so i'd be really curious to hear your guys opinions of ai art seeing as i thought i was in the majority but it turns out i may be in the minority for me not having a, a huge art background um or being a very i guess creative person outside of the the writing processes that i do for for anthropology or or the blogs or or, or elsewhere yeah this question has me thinking about what we like value when it comes to the sort of labor that we put into different activities. So I th- I'm thinking that, you know, f- for artists, it takes a lot of time, effort, energy to conceive, to think of, to sit down, to, to draw, to write, to paint a particular image. Um, whereas these AI and the sort of creative process around that is, is generated 
in bits, maybe in seconds. But yeah, I think that's a, a central point, right? That like the way that I understand the pushback against AI art or something like that is largely organized around terms of like labor and livelihood and stuff, not around the creativity of the products themselves, like the things that are produced themselves, because that I think people are kind of interested in this. Like say in the field of like AI and music, there's some musicians that will be working with algorithms and like kind of jamming with algorithms or like producing songs, producing half a song that then is finished by an algorithm or something like that. And it's something that they find kind of really exciting. But yeah, the, the question of whether or not AI will replace like the artistic production of humans, I think that's the thing that's kind of existentially nerve wracking for artists, right? Rather than just the, um, the things that are being produced by the algorithms. Absolutely, there are questions about the future and that I think that's true of pretty much all automation. But also, I think it's the unacknowledged labor that goes into the AI art. I mean, they learn by scraping images, thousands, millions of images off the internet. And then you kind of put in a text suggestion. And we've all seen the Dali memes and they are hilarious. Don't get me wrong. I love a good meme and a joke. So no issues there. But then it tries to interpret those words into an image through a whole lot of processing. But the images that are produced are often very similar to that of actual artists. I mean, there's a great example whereby somebody asked for a piece of artwork and the AI really copied, clearly copied a couple of people's styles to the point where there was even kind of like a pseudo signature off the shoulder of the person in the image, because that's what all the artists, the AI was sort of copying did yeah and i think like two things to jump in um um there's this thing there's this twitter account at the moment called super composite and this is a, a woman that works in something to do with this um but she noticed the pattern in certain artistic productions that this algorithm was producing this algorithm she was working with and she called it loab lobe and i should give a content warning because it's truly terrifying but this is like a pattern that kind of emerges because this is a pattern that exists in the data of a crying woman, I guess because society is so terrifically misogynist that data will conspire to create a, a crying woman. Like this will be like a trend um, that will present itself through the inputs that, that a person is putting into this machine. Um, it might be some kind of broader thing, but yeah, like I, I think it connects to two problems, right? Like the the literacy and illiteracy of a person who is designing these things in say questions of race or gender will show up in the literacy or illiteracy of the you know the particular thing that's being produced that's one thing that's interesting to me uh and that's one thing we need to be kind of really mindful of and i think that's something that anthropologists are really really critical of with 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 data and with algorithms and ai and so on the other one that really interests me is the way that say the form of AI changes us, like uh, trying to kind of view it a bit more recursively. Like I'm thinking of like Mary Poovey's work who kind of says like the whole reason we think of an, an economy as an ontological thing is because, um, you know, historically people use double entry, um, what, do you, what do you call them? Double entry ledger that's happening there. Or, you know, say like maybe there's a reason why we're really interested in AI art at the moment not just because it's there, but, but like, I'm thinking about the fact that in popular music at the moment, like, choruses have become way less common. Um, 
like having a big kind of crescendo that's not really a thing in music quite so much as it once was a lot of it's about like you know a two minute song that's kind of a vibe that it just kind of like cruises along and you kind of put it in the background kind of like putting netflix on in the background kind of like having some cbd like just like just just trying to get by kind of thing and so something like we're not going to be surprised by anything that's being produced by ai art but i don't know if surprise is something that you know talking at the broadest levels is something that we're interested in you know <laughs> well look and then you know the economic anthropologist goes and of course this in my mind also comes back to the economic system that there is a near insatiable appetite for that level of just kind of background filler in our lives we are socially i guess more than economically at the moment we're living in a time where you always have to have some background music it kind of has me terrified for the future when ais start creating full-fledged podcasts <laughs> take a couple of voices or you know some automated series or alexas put them into a podcast add some digital ai music have them talk it's already you know. happening kathy's not really here sean <laughs> <laughs> pulling words from you know uh news media outlets or or twitter or whatever and then putting that into a script and having a, a you know a back and forth conversation between two ai computers you know as a social commentary as you know that running sort of background vibe that lachlan is talking about um like sometimes we do listening to a podcast maybe doing the dishes but having you know an ai generated version of that which then yeah sort of ties it back in and, and undercuts the the idea of um labor that is is a lot of these artists are so i guess passionate against right in that tradition of education and the labor of education and, and learning from a particular group of people from a particular institution whether it's you know within art or with whether it's within anthropology the you know the area and the place where you get your education where you learn how to draw how do you how to paint how to create art how to do anthropology um vastly shapes your your trajectories your ways of thinking your ways of interacting and, and discussing these these styles or ways of creating social commentary through your art, through your writing, um, or through your podcasting. But again, right, even if they were, even if AI were creating podcasts, they're still going to be taking it, well, hopefully, by the way that you've described, by a lot of human beings inputting data and writing those news articles, hopefully. And if we exclude all of the Twitter bots, they're also mainly coming from human beings, the tweets. And so I wonder if that would actually mean that more voices were heard. But I do wonder what we would get out of it and what conversations would happen. And if it would mean that there was more sharing of the microphone for people that don't necessarily have the the mass followings and the mass endorsements from institutions because they're not traditionally able to access those spaces and their voices aren't traditionally heard. And so I do wonder if it would create a little bit more more movement and justness in even the way that we access information and how it's interpreted. Well, this is a big argument of AI projects, isn't it? That it theoretically democratizes these things. You know, learning to be a good artist to not just like, oh, I scribble, I draw, but, you know, produce full color images in a painterly style or actual paintings. It's kind of a privileged thing. 
I mean, certainly a lot of great artists come out of poor communities, but nevertheless, having the time to learn that skill, the resources to put it into practice for the, was it 10,000 hours to become a master or whatever they say, not everyone has that. So there is that argument that this lets somebody with an idea who just wants to unleash it, unleash it. So I think that's all we've got time for on that topic. And there's something that I've been thinking about a little bit this week. So I've been thinking a lot about the women's rights and protest movements in Iran in relation to Mahasa Amini, who died in custody of Iran's morality police. And I've been really thinking about what this means for us as feminists and for social movements in how they interact across the world. Well, Kathy, I want to ask you something. As the feminist anthropologist, right? But where do you square your activism away with your role as an anthropologist? I mean, there is the old ideal of cultural relativism and we should accept um, different cultures, blah, 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 which has been critiqued for decades and decades now, to be totally clear. But nevertheless, you are highly active in a lot of transnational activist spaces. And yet at the same time, time i think as anthropologists we ought to at least to some extent accept the cultures we encounter and yet a lot of a lot of transnational women's movements are kind without changing other cultures are they not it's something that i have a lot of tension with actually and i've been writing about it this evening so it's super topical but i think a lot of it has to do with reflecting on your own positionality and really really interrogating that consistently like there is never a moment in time where i'm not thinking what is my place in this movement and then what is this is my place and how am I interpreting that in my writing and in my research as an anthropologist. I do err on the side of caution with I don't think that I will ever be able to separate myself. I'm not an anthropologist one day and an activist another day. I am absolutely an activist anthropologist as much as a lot of traditional anthropologists would say that that it's not okay or it's not really legitimate anthropology. I would beg to differ and I actually think that it makes both my research and my activism stronger or at least I attempt and I try very hard to understand the movements for what they are and I also really interrogate my own feminism and my own perspective on what feminism is and I think the whole process of anthropology has really helped me unpack that like unpack those really liberal values of individualism and women only being feminist when they're shouting and screaming on the streets and not necessarily within their own homes and I think people like uh, Sarah Muhammad have really helped me understand that feminist feminism doesn't just have to be that. For my research in Afghanistan, a lot of the women I work with actually live outside of Afghanistan now, but they run schools underground with women they know in villages where the Taliban are very active. That traditionally education wouldn't necessarily be seen as an act of insurgence or owning your own rights, I suppose. And it's very underground and it's very not spoken about. And so I think that understanding that and using that as a, a critique and a pushback against Western feminism is quite important. Like a follow-up, there's kind of a question for everyone, but I, I, I like what you're talking about, Kathy, that like... Um, 
part of the way that you be like a good anthropologist uh, when you're working with people that are doing work to change the world um, is really kind of just like believing them and trusting them. And that's where like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe something like cultural relativism comes in, but it comes in not just like as a requirement for objectivity, but as a, like a desire to not impose, you know, whatever kind of liberal hangovers you might have about what activism should look like onto these people right like so like it's not trying to kind of withdraw your assumptions or anything like that but just to try to be like you know these people understand this context way better than i do and so therefore i'm not going to say what i think activism should look like and so i like that there's this very weird mixture of subjectivity objectivity nothing's neat but it makes a whole bunch of political and ethical sense um so that's really cool and it gets me to thinking about you know, the form that protest takes and, like, the form that social change takes, like, and if there's any relationship between them, because I'm not really convinced that protest works, you know, say the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, but particularly, like, the summer uprisings of 2020, like, no, no police were defunded, um, police budgets just exploded afterwards, right, like, and, you know, protest cycles, they, you know, take decades to, to kind of see anything. And we might want to see, you know, we want, might want to go out on the street and then see a policy change immediately. But I was reading, I think it's called the Society Change Lab or something like that. They published a report earlier this year um, studying various protest movements around the world. And they were just like, yeah, like there's no real meaningful link between protest movements and policy change at, at, at a, like at a level of like between like, I don't know, like two and five years or something like this. And so I'm wondering what this means, not to take it too far away from Iran, but like to, to like what this means for how we think about activism and how we think about social change and, and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think the question of who protests are for is also a really interesting topic that you can kind of draw on. I know with some of the movements um, that I've worked within, a lot of people say, actually, this protest is for us because we just want to get out there and we want to be together and we want to re-energize ourselves and we want to be angry. And sometimes people don't listen and sometimes the protesters themselves know nobody is going to listen. But it's almost like that act and that performance is something that is really gratifying for the movement itself to keep going. And just getting some attention is is incredibly important. Doesn't that beg a very cynical question of if these acts are important to keep the movement together, but they're not actually achieving anything, then what is the point of the movement beyond sustaining itself? Uh, I don't think the point of a movement is a protest and then an immediate policy change, necessarily. It's definitely happened in Australia recently, we can look at our, our marches and arguably you could say our entire election changed because of some of the things that were happening. But there was things that were broiling underneath for a long time. And I think the sustainability of social movements does create change. And I do think that this pushing back and this, you know, lots of things that we spoke about when I was younger, my parents called me completely radical and crazy and these ideas would never come to, come forth which now are normal in society. So talking about gender diversity or talking about the rights of people who aren't cis, straight, heterosexual people is now something that we absolutely, not all the time, but that it's, it's a lot more normal and a lot more common to talk about and for it to be accepted. And I think that that's the work of social movements 
but that could also be my inherent bias of being a part of one since I was 14. <laughs> that undercurrent of momentum that you speak about, Kathy, in social movements really has me thinking about, um, and I'm going to butcher her name, unfortunately, Selikoglu, uh, um, but her recent 2020 book, uh, Working Out Desire, Women's Sport and Self-Making in, in Istanbul, was a really interesting, deep dive into what it's like for, I guess, a social movement in general of sort of middle-aged and, and older women in Istanbul taking, um, not doing a silent protest, um, but I guess taking space in a way that a protest might, taking public space and using public parks and workout equipment as, as a way to shape what it meant for them to to be women in public spaces to hold that type of femininity and 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 shape their feminist practices both out in public um but also within the home within working out uh within gyms um and other sort of workout and women's only spaces and it's really interesting to see and that's not like a, a large protest or a really I guess, sort of radical movement, but it's it's more this undercurrent sort of simmering, which is a, a social movement happening in the background, which is always, always informing social commentary and might lead to the sustainment or the explosion of these more public demonstrations of, of protests. I'm thinking about, say, feminist movements in Mexico where, uh, like, 10, 10 women are murdered every single day in Mexico. It's like a, in Mexico feminicida. Like, it's like a, like a femicidal place. But the president, who began as, like, kind of like a leftish person, is now becoming increasingly authoritarian. And he will identify anyone who was a feminist as being uh, a foreign agitator. And I think that's one of the, the things that authorities in Iran are also saying, that anybody who is pushing back against, say, the morality police or anything like that, that this is a US-sponsored intervention. That's a really kind of common thing. And yeah, I'm a person who talks about US foreign intervention all the time, right? But at the same time, when people like the Mexican president um, or authorities in Iran say that stuff, I'm kind of like, oh, no, that sucks. Like that this is a thing that maybe some leftist people will hear and be like, oh yeah, you're right, I shouldn't, you know, want women to have more freedom than they currently have. And so I'm wondering about like, say these transnational networks, like these are a way of mobilizing momentum, but now it's become uh, a mode of pushing back from authorities. And so I'm wondering what, if we could kind of theorize what the next step would be for, for transnational networks. Kathy, if you've seen folks like, kind of trying to work out what this next step would be of trying to anticipate uh, the critiques that, that certain states will offer uh, transnational networks and how they might, you know, uh, negotiate that. Yeah, I think that that's a really big one. And it's also some, I understand where it comes from as well. I mean, the fact that so many feminist movements that traditionally would have been your groups of grassroots activists are now brought in by really big international institutions like the UN. They're taken to Geneva, they're trained, they're given these platforms that are incredibly Western, um, not in all circumstances, but definitely in some. And I think a lot of feminists are actually trying to break away from that now. They're actually saying, we don't want to be NGOized, um, which is what has happened so frequently. A lot of the women in Afghanistan that I work with, they say, almost feel like they're they're leveraging the narrative of the US that the US wants them to say, because they're saying, well, 
because the US was there, they feel like they were able to participate in political um, activities. So the women that I work with for the context, a lot of them were former MPs in the Afghan government. And so it does make it really tense, I think. And there is this real, I don't know if there's an answer and I don't know if either theoretically or empirically anyone really has an answer of how to get out of this murky mess as what is a genuine transnational movement and what is something that is co-opted by a narrative that's ran right by the UN or the US. I'd I'd personally say that that dichotomy is itself is the starting point. I mean, what you've, if we're going to say, you know, it's a genuine transnational movement when it's something I agree with and it's co-opted cultural imperialism when it's something I disagree with, <laughs> that's not a very strong analytical framework, right? Like, in Ecuador, I'm sure in Mexico as well, there's heaps of quite right-wing, like, crazy Pentecostal people. No, but um, there is some really extreme evangelicalism that I find hard and that I mean Ecuador a while ago now had this big anti um anti-abortion and kind of anti-trans rights protest and it's not like Ecuador's huge on trans rights and abortion is illegal and so but thousands and thousands of people turned out in these massive protests uh, again, to to say it, these were not genuine feelings, I, I'm I am against their protests. To be clear, but to say that's not a genuine transnational movement would, I think, really be misconstruing the issue. It's genuine. It may not be something I agree with, but it is genuine. I, I didn't hear Kathy saying that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like you weren't commenting on ideology. I think you were talking about political economy, and then also like. I guess, form and focus, right? So, like, the way that certain political imaginaries are are kind of taught to people, so certain liberal ideas of what it means to be a political person being exported from a liberal context to a context where liberalism doesn't make the, it doesn't have the same traction on the ground, that just seems like bad politics, but it also just seems like a form of imperialism. And so I don't think it was whether, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like you weren't saying like whether or not you agree with it, but you were just like, that's just a practice. Firstly, it doesn't make any sense. And secondly, maybe ideologically, I disagree with it, you know? Yeah, totally. Thank you. <laughs> And that's all we've got time for today. I want to thank Alec. Thanks, Gabby. Sean. Thank you. Lachlan. And today's app was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is a wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange not the strange familiars which is another fun podcast just not ours you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at tfs tweets or look us up on facebook and instagram Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, 
Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rao. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep talking strange.